Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a hematologist, medical oncologist, also known as the Onc Doc on social media. And today I am very excited about having someone also that I hope I can call a friend and a mentor, Dr. Doug Flora. And the reason I'm bringing along Doug is because we had a lot of uh, kind of questions and and insights and implications when we had Scott Penberthy, the director of Google Applied AI, talking about how AI can really change uh, oncology. But a lot of this stuff was in the future. So I brought in none other than the chief editor of AI and Precision Oncology, a journal that has gotten a lot of steam, really, uh, just with its preview issues. So, Doug, I'm super happy to have you as a medical oncologist, but also as chief editor of the journal, to be able to explain really what's in the immediate future and how it's going to make the clinical application uh, something that hopefully optimizes everything across the board. So thank you for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Where do you, and you, uh, you were at St. Elizabeth's, correct? In, uh, my wife is from Ohio and you're in that area to, uh, now and, and I've been there for quite some time. Yep. I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. I practice in Northern Kentucky, right across the river at St. Elizabeth Healthcare. Let's get into it. You know, because every time I bring up AI, I, I noticed, and I said this with, with Scott, that a lot of people kind of, um, are like, well, we'll see how it pans out and, and act like it's very binary. How do you see AI in an immediate future, because I know you know it's not a takeover thing. That's that's strong AI, right? That's a whole different concept, uh, which you see on TV shows about like, oh, they take over humans. Everything else is mostly weak AI, which is like Alexa and all these other things, but 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 it's more elevated than that. How do you see AI affecting us kind of in the next five or 10 years? Sanjay, it's, it's, it's a tool to me, just like CAT scans, just like MRI, just like stethoscopes. Um, and I think there's a lot of hysteria out there right now because it sells and the media is really excited about, you know, the concept of AI, not recognizing it's thousands of individual products that need to be evaluated on their own merit. And so for me as a clinician, what I want is something that will give me back hours in my day, something that will make my decision making better or easier, something that will screen uh, cancer patients for trials or cancer better, maybe design better drugs. But we're not at the decision analysis stuff. Uh, at this level yet, uh, the technologies just quite aren't there yet. So we're not quite yeah. there. Yeah. One of the things that, that, that came to me when I was speaking in DC for the idea summit on AI's application. And, you know, I think, I don't know what it is about the universe that makes you have a concept or a thought, but I asked the audience, it was like 200 people. I said, so how many of these people or how many of you all, what's the first thing that you say if a loved one has, you know, like, God forbid, a, a cancer diagnosis, a new cancer diagnosis. What do you do for your care? Where do you want to go? And everyone says, mostly, I want to go to someone with experience, right? That is the biggest kind of statement. If it's you or if it's your family member, say, I need someone with experience. And if you think about it, what is it about someone with experience that makes you want to go to them? It's not that they have a crystal ball, right? It's not that they have some magic answer that's not available. If you really distill down what it is that someone with experience managing your cancer is is desirable for, it's their pattern recognitions. They have seen more patterns on cancer diagnoses, the treatments, the outcomes, and the side effects than others. So you're hoping that their experience of patterns applicable to that scenario is what best equips them to take care of your loved one. What is AI? AI is not automated algorithms like the like the the super machine computers where we say X, Y, X, Y, Z. AI is actually pattern recognition learning. It's saying, okay, I'm just going to learn, load me up, 
let me know what they had, what they got, how they responded. Oh, by the way, what color was their skin? What medications were they on? What were their germline, you know, genomics and all of these things that they were born with other than just somebody on a, on a statistic sheet? And then let me just continue to see the behaviors and outcomes. That is learning in a pattern form. It's experience on steroids far higher than a brain is capable of doing just, just by sheer volume or definition of volume rather, correct? Yeah, I mean, and, you're, right, you're, you're right there. That What patients have said in every survey instrument published, the advisory board had a big one of 1,200 patients. They said, I want someone with experience in my specific cancer. And you're talking about, you want a doctor who's head reps. You don't want somebody fresh out of school, maybe. You don't want somebody who stopped reading 10 years ago. You want somebody who has the greatest, widest fund of knowledge and pattern recognition. And, and I think where you're headed is legit that uh, AI is going to help equalize that so that that kid first out of school and that 68-year-old person who may not be reading as avidly may have decision support uh, that elevates both of their games to be that, which is, uh, you know, equal to getting thousands of reps immediately. Yes, that's a good that's a good way to put it. It's like, you know, people used to say, oh, you want someone with, with pepper in their hair almost exclusively. And now they're like, well, I hear if you go too much pepper, then they don't know the most current things because it's rapid. And of course, that's that's just all a guess. That's just very obtuse colors trying to be able to get the best care. But in this case, it's kind of marrying those two together, which is very, uh, especially in medical oncology, a very important thing. So with all that said, Doug, is AI something that's like, oh, it's it's what we can imagine something to be, or are there applications now and something that's happening maybe in the next couple of years versus the stuff that usually people jump to, which is, you know, five or 10 years from now? Yeah. You know, the stuff that's now is is uh, really good at pattern recognition, as you mentioned. So the, the back of an eye ground, uh, they've nailed that reading digital slides in pathology departments, they've nailed that. CT scans, x-rays, um, MRI, EKGs, done and dusted. They're ready. And, and I think those tools will be entering the clinics this year all over the country, all over the world, hopefully, um, and helping augment the ability of radiologists and pathologists to do their job um, in a much more expedient manner. Um, maybe two, three years from now, we're going to start to see things like our up-to-date and our um, algorithms synthesizing with AI to give you probably the best selected answer, truly moving to evidence-based care, but where the the database and the pattern recognizer runs the algorithm for you based upon everything you've just described, the patient's pharmacogenomics, the genetics, the epigenetics, the other drugs they're on, their baseline creatinine clearance, and all those things. Because there is usually a best choice if everybody's read the same articles and everyone has the same fund of knowledge. And then you look forward five, eight, 10 years from now, I don't think you and I as medical oncologists will practice without a digital personal assistant. I think every single recording will take all the unstructured data, finish our notes, order our tests, remind us that those tests are coming due, help us connect to patients with advice and teaching. Uh, And that's where it gets exciting is this a way to scale you and me because we're behind every day when we wake up by two hours a day and they're just not making enough cancer doctors for the number of cancer patients that are out there now. 100%. You know, I I remember when I first kind of got into fellowship. And I was like, okay, I can't, you know, wait to hear what the recommendations are and what the different factors are to go with a treatment choice, especially in a metastatic setting, but even, you know, in a curative setting. And then you go to the guidelines and it's like usually one or two things. And I'm like, where are the modifiers outside of the cancer and maybe, you know, some of the mutations that it has? Where are the other modifiers? Like, I'm like, well, what about an Indian person? Because I know my anesthesia may be different, you know, the dosing compared to someone else or or, you know, how people respond to metformin and Plavix and all these things. And I realized there were none. 
there's no modifiers. It's just kind of like, well, it doesn't really matter or it does, but we don't know. And that's something that I think is hard for me to swallow and a lot of other people because it was one information. So you ask somebody, how did you handle the treatment? How did it go? How, you know, what was the outcome? And then it's hard not to group yourself in this category, even though we know that so many different factors happen, right? When it comes to, again, especially the big one is like what you're born with, how you're metabolizing these drugs. What is the environment around the immune system, around the tumor, which we're able to sample? You know, I think um, there's a company that is coming out that looks at all of the kind of sequencing of the actual immune system around there. And so if anyone's watching this and they say, well, I want that, I want this, I want that, that's what hopefully this AI data logging can do, as well as with imaging. I love what you said about pathologists and, and, the, and the imaging reports. You know, I think we forget, and I'm fallible. Like, we are all fallible. I'm not saying others and are, others are and I'm not. But you're at the mercy of that stain and how it was stained. And sometimes the expression matters if it's 2 plus or 3 plus for her too on breast cancer, right? Was it stained properly? Was it dried properly? Was it red, you know, on a Saturday or a Sunday? All of those things are when you start teasing them down on what we're at the mercy of on saying we either have cancer or how our response is the the you know radiologist that individuals read like you said is a it's an adjunctive tool to say okay take the human eyes but let's go ahead and take thousands of of cataloged um kind of again pattern recognition and what the outcomes were and what what that ended up being on a mammogram if it turned out to be cancer or not all of that helps fortify and hopefully like you said neutralize that kind of variance that happens depending on where you live, what time of day the biopsy was and everything else. Yep, absolutely. I, I think we we understand as doctors that you're at your best Monday morning at 8.30. You're probably not at your best Friday afternoon at 5.30 p.m. Uh, we all have capacity. And um, I do think that if we can use these tools diligently and in a disciplined and realistic fashion, what we can do is give hours back to those doctors a day and maybe let them practice an environment that's less stressful, less caustic, less toxic uh, at the same time. And my hope with that more time especially is, is, and I think it's the only reason, it wasn't a goal of mine to like do social media, this and that. I even have social media like literally four or five years ago. And the reason that I think, and the only reason that, that the engagement is there is because of the lack of time with education, explanation, kind of knowing what's going on and the whys and the what to expects. Those things can hopefully, that it is so underserved for patients in this country, especially in community oncology, which is 85% of it, on just getting the full explanations. Because from the men on side, as you know, and I know, the, the, the trouble is there's so much in the background from that visit. Did, did the tissue get sent? When is it coming back? Did the radiology report get read? Why was this like, oh, this seems like a mistake. Do the finance. It leaves... First, the patients, you know, usually can't see that stuff, but that doesn't make it any more okay that they don't get the time to really discuss. And that's where the paucity and, and the exhaustion is uh, on the on the steam and the fuel. And I think that's going to be hard to prove or catalog really, right? There's no metric to show like, oh, look what happens in overall mental health and okayness with, with plans and, and, and trust. But for the healthcare system as a whole, I think that's where, um, you know, it can almost save kind of what we're seeing in oncology and the higher rates just in, in the health system alone when it comes with burnout and everything else. Yeah, we're, we're moving that in our system. Uh, so obviously there are a number of tools, five or six different companies that are very far, far along with natural language processing and physicians documentation. 
Uh, so I know in our system, every time we meet with our physicians, our medons quarterly, we can sit down with them and say, hey, listen, looking at these biograms, you're on your computer at 1130 at night, four nights a week and, we, you know, pajama time. And including my own brother, who's a medical oncologist in my practice, he's continually late and um, staying up late to finish notes. What if we could solve all those problems by taking unstructured data? And there is a tool that does this now um, that will turn them into notes and you can have a conversation with your patient and you hit your phone in the room and it will take out all the conversations about um, how was your vacation or how's your daughter doing all the pleasantries that we have at the beginning of the visit. And it knows that that's not part of the note. Generate your note for you to sign as you leave the room. You could get back four hours a day. For people like me who can't type, that's life-saving. Uh, and, and I'm really excited. That's here now. That's that's probably 200 healthcare systems have, have bought into those systems. I think that's an easy early win for those of us that aren't comfortable yet with AI to say, we have problems with access. We have problems with not enough oncologists. We have too many patients. And our doctors are not working at top of license if they're spending four hours typing a day. That seems like an easy foray into AI uh, to me as an uh as a physician and as an administrator. One thing that I've like found that I thought was interesting is how sometimes people do well and, and not so well. You know, I know I, I can't imagine, right? I, I don't know how chemotherapy side effects feel, but I at least get that pattern recognition of, of similar treatments and chemotherapies often uh, and how people respond. And, and we have an idea, right? Like that we're taught, which is like, oh, their height, their weight, their fitness, which is their ECOG and everything else. And sometimes it's just inexplicable. And then sometimes... Certain supportive medications work like a charm, like just like fix it up immediately. And the other ones seem to bounce right off that kind of AI as well. Just that, just that analysis of, okay, what's their underlying kind of, you know, pharmacogenomics, how do they respond to things, how they respond to the, both the treatment and the, and the meds, it could hopefully make for a more precise treatment, uh, profile, or at least side effect tolerance to the treatment, uh, especially, and not have these wide ranges of this is what the percent chance is of working or not working. Because if we're, mod if we're modeling to the tumor itself, why often are we saying in a second and third line setting is 20, 30, 40% chance of working? That means most of the time it fails. And I'm like, but they're all the same tumor. So what is it about that tumor that's making it respond only, you know, less than half the time? And then we learned, oh, well, it's these other pieces. It's, the, it's, it's what has to do with the uh, immune system. And then really, what are your levels like? What's happening to your levels when you get the treatment? Is it enough? Is it too little? Some people... I don't, you know, they're very lucky, get a lot of relief with Tylenol for pain. I'm not one of those people. I don't, I need less ibuprofen. Some people need twice as much as I do. That same thing applies for treatments and for sequencing and everything else, right? And that's why at the bare minimum, I think it's nice to be able to do these uh, molecular tests now, the circulating tumor DNA for responses. Like instead of waiting sometimes six, eight, 12 weeks, you can actually get the amount of tumor shedding of, of hair and dust from the tumor when you start. And then, you know, I think they want about six weeks, a lot of them. And at least that's one way to temporarily band-aid neutralize the field, which is, okay, let's see what happened. Did it go down nicely? Is there one colony that's going higher? Um, these are all ways that we're trying to get around the fact that there are variables that we just can't account for or don't have a way to do so yet. And once we learn it, like with, with, with uh, you know, whether it's AI, whatever, whatever it is, but the data needs to be there. And I think people are coming around today to understanding, yes, if that can benefit my children or this, that, and the other, and having a more narrow idea of, and a more precise idea of how to handle this, you know, treatment course, which 
in a lot of ways is still barbaric, right? The way we shotgun approaches and treatments, I think it's going to go a long way. Sure. And do that same effect when it comes to the kind of not uniform or streamlined responses uh, to treatments themselves. Tell us about screening, because you've been reading a lot lately that screening even uh, is kind of controversial even by some accounts. I've heard that, you know, we had that report about colonoscopies uh, uh, across seas. And then some people are saying mammograms themselves are questionable. And of course, the, the evidence hasn't been as strong as something like low-dose CT lung cancer screening. Can you speak on that, that controversial part of it? And I assume it has to do with the heterogeneity, again, of people and demographics. But 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 if you could tell us more, that'd be helpful. Yeah, I, that speaks more to this pattern recognition. So uh, number one, I will say something heretical, which is I think that we need to start over with screening. The idea that we are using biologic and chronologic age to determine someone's risk is so arcane to me, given all the tools that are available to us. You can't tell me the 49-year-old four-pack-per-day smoker is a better surgical cure operative patient than a 79-year-old who quit 14 years ago. So to me, that's just silliness. And so as we see these deep learning modules and, and, uh, and machine learning moving into this realm, I think we're going to have much more higher degrees of sensitivity for our screening tests when we're screening the appropriate populations based upon what the tools have steered us to. And, you know, I mentioned we already know that CT scans can augment um, lung cancer detection by dedicated academic chest radiologists that do nothing but read low-dose CT. Uh, I mentioned that mammography can do the same. There are a, a number of uh, AI tools out there that will both grade and stage patients' risks um, pre-mammogram or pre-ultrasound or pre-MRI and there's a, a, a gamut of ones that will read the films uh, and see things in 3D over time that might escape the human eye, especially a tired human eye who had a fight with their spouse on the way to work, uh, all the humane human things that come in. So I'd like to see as we get closer to these big models on the, the big EHRs like, um, like Epic and Cerner, having a risk score assigned based upon all of those things. And I think that's a smarter thing than arbitrarily giving an age cutoff for a 40-year-old or 50-year-old uh, when it's probably... Um, that stuff passed 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, one of the most common questions I get is what can I do to get screened or, you know, why you have to reach a certain age. And, you know, originally it was just a probability. It was just statistical likelihood or, or less likely and no question in part economic, right? So like if you could, you know, screen somebody every year for something, you know, and it made, money wasn't an issue, maybe it would make sense because you're catching cancers earlier, but then you have to kind of balance that scale. What are some things that patients can do or even oncologists, are there anything that kind of gets, you know, more creative or up to date when it comes to screening modalities? I know there's Grail, you know, which is just a, at that moment to see if you have malignancy or not, but even that, that's malignancy. What about like the stuff that's pre-malignancy, like the reason for a pap smear or, or DCIS or any of those things? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, Scott touched on that in your last podcast, and I thought you guys did a great job covering that. This transition point from pre-disease to disease, from DCIS to invasive, from uh, abnormal squamous cells on a um, on a colposcopy uh, to being something that was more significant for cervical cancer. As we're better able to identify those points in time, and as our tools are getting more refined to pick those up, I, I'm very excited about that aspect. You know, and and tools like Grail are are they're decent, they're good, um, but they're not quite there yet. I do love the concept of could we screen for 50 different cancers at once instead of one image, one cancer. That makes a ton of sense to me. Um, companies like Delphi are looking at uh, torn off chromosome arms that are circulating through four or five companies are looking at DNA methylation and aging of cells and senescent cells and 
and, and uh, you know, Grail and Exact are probably at the front of the line with tools that they've started to validate, but still with a high degree of false negatives and a high degree of false positives. Um, so you might have to screen 200 people to find one true cancer. And we don't even know if that's a stage one or stage two. And they often miss the slower growers, the slow, low-grade prostates, the low-grade breast. And so there's work to be done. And I, I credit those companies for really pushing the envelope. And we're getting there. We need more validated studies. We need more um, more proof positive uh, in clinical trials that are published and validated. That's what our journal is hoping to do. Uh, but I'm excited about the future of this. I think using the pattern recognition we've talked about to look at DNA microarray or methylation patterns will help us identify these things in their faintest footsteps long before you would see a sugar cube sized lymph node on a CT scan. Right. That's the key is just how long it takes to see something on the images that we're still using to say that this is the best way to catch or not catch. I mean, you know, you know, personally, like I do the hardest thing, well, what about my mammogram a year ago or, or three months ago? And why do I have this now? And all these, my colonoscopy was normal. And it's like, you know, it's hard. It's, you know, to be honest, like that's be human error. It could be, you know, the imaging technique and all these things, but to be able to have something, you know, like Scott said, on a nano level to just detect a very small amount whether it's an imaging or, or on a blood test, uh, can hopefully reduce those kind of mentally hard questions to get over, right? Because you, I can't imagine how hard it is not to not think about what if. What about all these um, imaging kind of, you know, the Kim Kardashian, I think, did one that was like, and it actually like turned out to be something that was, I think, productive. Do you know what she did in, in those scans that basically are like less radiation exposure and you can pay out of pocket? Some people just say, do I need a total body MRI? Should I pay for it? What's your what's your opinion and feeling about that? Are there some that you're excited about? Yeah, I, you know, I think for you and I as, as docs, we take this pledge to first do no harm, right? And so I love things like that in a clinical trial where you have a control group and where you have a, um, a group of people that are adequately surveyed to see if you can make a meaningful difference. We're not doing the favor or the patients any favors finding diseases that are already advanced. Uh, we're not doing any favors scaring people for incidental omas that don't turn out to be cancers. We cause harm because they re they require biopsies uh, that place their bodies at harm and cost a lot of money and ire and uh, and angst. I would say I have seen a number of tools at at, um, at recent publications like things that augment your ability to do colonoscopies. So while your endoscopist is staking around taking a look with their camera these image generators will identify spots that might seem uh, husky or dusky or um, raised that the human eye might have missed and they put a red box around it for the endoscopist because the suggestion is I would biopsy this if I were you. That to me is more exciting because it's a targeted way of doing this and we already have a way to study the impact because you get an immediate biopsy done during a procedure that was already being done. So maybe I'm a little friendlier towards that than just everybody goes out, you know, like when Oprah used to say, everybody needs cancer screening. Well, sure, most people need cancer screening, but it might be a genetic screen is a higher yield than a CAT scan. And that's where you need clinicians and genetic counselors and people that work in these fields to steer you towards the appropriate degree of screening. And I will say at St. Elizabeth, we've built a prevention clinic. So it's not just what scans do I need, but what are my genetic mishaps? What are the Achilles heels that I'll have to deal with during my life? And what are the things that I can do to reduce obesity or reduce alcohol intake or increase the amount of fiber in my diet or decrease the amount of uh, saturated fats and those sorts of things. Because I think people want to be proactive if they've got reliable information. And that's where I see the enthusiasm for all this stuff going with Peter Accia and Lee Hood and all these, these, uh, these leaders talking about longevity and advancing the science to increase your health span 
it's pretty exciting to me to think about that we're at this level. We can measure those things now. Your biologic age versus your chronologic age. That's it's unbelievable. And people listening to this, you know, maybe with your work with ACCC, which is a you know the largest community uh, cancer organization um, of all the elements involved in cancer care. Do you know someone listening to this says, "I want that," but they can't go to St. Elizabeth's and and if the answer is you know no, we'll look it up and then hopefully add it into the comments. But where can somebody that's very uh, proactive about wanting the prevention mindfulness, but they're limited to the location of where they you know where they are? Is there somewhere that you know of that people can kind of access that information and get that help? Yeah, that's that's been tougher, and, and there are some some hurdles we have to overcome there. There's a law called GINA uh, that was passed to protect people who had genetic screening from discrimination. It didn't get through in the final bill to exclude um, discrimination based upon your genotype or your pharmacogenomics or screens for cancer for things like long-term care insurance or um, life insurance. So they can't um, they can't not sell you health insurance, but they can absolutely not sell you life or long-term. And so some of those, you really want to make sure you're near someone who does these tests frequently, can counsel you as to the risks and time it appropriately. Um, there aren't big governing bodies that do this yet. The stuff that Dr. Hood, Leroy Hood does with ISB up in the Pacific Northwest is the best study that I've seen. He's got about 18 different analytes from a blood test. He does uh, fecal wipes for your gut microbiome. There is an app that tracks your biologic age that was validated by his instrument that I think is pretty cool. My brother's actually doing that right now was bragging this morning that this year he is 0.65 of a year in aging. And I'm sure I'm 1.35, meaning I'm aging more than the average one per year. And because he's so healthy, he's aging, aging at less than one year per year aged. Uh, so that's, that's where we're going. Yeah. This is a test that anybody can get. Uh, this is something that Dr. Hood is trying to get everyone to get. He's trying to collect millions of patients to voluntarily give their data in a de-identified fashion to help validate those tools through his systems biology Institute. And uh, I'm fascinated by that. I think Dr. Hood has figured this stuff out and he has 50 years of experience in trying to do precision medicine and predictive medicine. And I, I completely believe in his approach that you need enormous data sets guided by AI uh, to decipher that code. See, I mean, we said so much at the beginning about all the variables that happen when it comes to pharmacogenomics, meaning how does your body metabolize something? Uh, what is the efficacy, et cetera? And I hadn't even mentioned microbiome. And that's kind of one of the most common questions I get. And I get excited because I'll have a conversation or start one with someone or even on our podcast, but then even the applications of microbiome get fractionated to so many different things because there's a microbiome that has to do with your immune system and even how potent uh, it is or isn't when it comes to anti-tumoral activity. And then also like how you respond to immune therapy apparently pairs and a certain number help, uh, at least the this you know, study showed like they seem to have a higher response than people that never ate pairs, right? So there's that aspect of microbiome. Then there's the aspect of, of whether you respond to the treatment or not, just the antitumoral activity itself. And then the third thing is how you have side effects and, and treatment kind of toxicities or, or sub-therapies based on that biome. And then when you, you know, people want to question, well, fiber, does it help? Does it, does it not? It's somehow just skipping over the microbiome what that stomach and 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 uh, intestine has been exposed to, that's why it's so complicated. It's not that I think, you know, there's a lot of weaknesses for sure about the healthcare industry. I think you and I have talked about that stuff privately, 
but one of them is not that we're just trying to hide or they're not trying to hide the fruits and vegetables that do and don't this and the other. It's just to this point been sub-evaluated because of a very important factor and that's the microbiome. Um, can you speak on that more? Are you familiar with the, with some of its yeah. applications? Yeah, I, I think the big thing in the the last five years for you and I as medics is what's happened to checkpoint inhibitors. So the drugs that everybody knows, the Keytrudas, the Opdivos, those drugs definitely seem to track with specific gut micro microbiomes and specific species of bacteria that um, that predominate in certain people's guts. And there may be something related to inflammation. Uh, there may be something related to uh, the 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 numbers served, and you know you have all these experimental people trying yogurts and probiotics and those sorts of things. I will tell you for me, it it illustrates the processes that you and I have tried to understand for, for me for 20 years now, the heterogeneity of tumors and the effect of stroma on tumor response. And I've simplified it for decades telling my patients when they get a dimorphic response in their liver and in their bones. Simply, maybe I wasn't able to get the concentration of the area under the curve of that drug as deeply as well penetrated into bones as I could into liver because of the blood supply. That's really a gross simplification because it's probably not just how dense the bone is. It's the stroma surrounding it and, you know, those other features. I will tell you for the first time in the last two years, I've started to read papers in nature and nature medicine that are unpuzzling that and they're figuring that out and understanding the entire picture is greater than the, the sum of its parts. And you might have an EGFR exon 19 positive lung cancer and you think, gosh, this patient's going to live eight years, and then she progresses in four months. There's got to be something to that. And now with the advent of pharmacogenomics and the identifying you know, the pockets that are kicking out these things out of the receptors, we're starting to understand that this is a, a living, growing, breathing organism. You know, Just going back to Emperor of All Maladies, it is like an entity unto itself. And we have to approach cancer from a much more complicated, complex system standpoint if we're going to make big strides, not just adding three months of median survival for a eight-year-long trial. Uh, it's much more complicated than we originally believed it to be. It's not blood and black bile anymore. Yeah. And and to measure that, it just, again, goes to data. Like It's like it's so important. How can we make any conclusions unless we're not able to pattern recognize how we started this like podcast is you have to know what's there, what was given, what happened, what were the outcomes, and you have to know that in high volume. And that's where, you know, whether it's AI, this is not an AI podcast by any means. It was some piggyback discussed. I was like, who do I get to like talk about its applications? That is one. Like it, we, you just isolated multiple things that are problematic and complicated that makes it difficult for you and I. I mean, I feel sick. And I think that's part of one of the many things about burnout. I feel sick when the response was way shorter lived than it should have been. We celebrate, we high five, we're hopeful. And then it's like, I'm just so sorry. You're like, this is so statistically, you know, so much earlier than, than usual. And, and, and I, I take guilt home and I know I'm not supposed to, but, but the way we can have fewer of those incidences is to take into account those variables. And we can only know what those variables mean if we all come together as a humankind and just share what we know about ourselves and what our outcomes are, outcomes are. And, and, um, I don't know. You think we'll see that in our practicing lifetime? I, I think we're going to see that in five years. Yeah. Really? I, I think the, I think the payers are going to mandate it. It's just better care. I, I, Sanjay, I think in three years, it's going to be malpractice to not do those things. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. I, I, I think that the physicians who, um, who are using these tools 
to augment their clinical care are people I would flock to for care as a, as a cancer patient. And the people who are burying their head in the sand and wishing this wasn't a thing, um, I, I just think they're going to be left behind. Things are moving way too fast. Uh, and to be uh, an expert, to truly understand the nuances of an individual disease now, it requires twice the effort, three times the effort that it was for me 50 years ago when we had eight drugs, 10 drugs. You know, Now we've got 250 drugs a year, and each one of them has nuances that requires you to figure it out. And we've talked before, how do you put myeloma drugs in order? Like 10 of them arrived at the same time. None of them were studied in sequence. AI can puzzle that out. You know, yeah. AI can say for this person's phenotype or epigenome or pharmacogenomic uh, results, you need Velcade first. You need Revlimid second or the opposite. And and again, those are things that the human mind can't, can't figure out a thousand variables at once. We can do a couple hundred. You know, you can play poker, figure out a dozen. Uh, and the really, really good oncologists are soaking up all of this stuff. And when you choose a drug, you might not choose weekly taxol because you know your patient well enough to know she's got a 48-minute drive to get to your clinic. So you pick something that's every 21 days or even every 28 days. That's the nuance and the pattern recognition that you really want when you get to that highest level of the art of oncology. And I think the tools that we're talking about free up so much of your mental capacity and steer you down that route that you're more likely to make the right decision more often and have fewer disappointments, and so will your patients, because you're leaning on the best tools that are out there right now. More likely to have the favorable outcome more often. I love that you said that phrase exactly that way. You know, one question that surprised me at that idea summit, which I was frustrated because I didn't even conceive how this, you know, and maybe it was out of agorist, could be a concern, but I looked it up and I was like, oh, I, there are people asking this question. And I think it just takes stepping back from knowing, you know, what I and, and you have, have worked hard to learn about AI. That question was, well, how is this going to trickle down to bias? Like when it comes to racial bias and gender bias and and disparities and inequity, like, like couldn't it just augment it or couldn't it somehow feed a bias that already exists into now models that are like, you know, not intentionally, but maybe unintentionally, uh, contributing to inequity. And, 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 and again, I couldn't, cause I, I couldn't conceive how that would be the case. Um, and, and maybe you can explain that better and I'll take a shot if you can't, but it's a real concern. And one, I think you can debunk pretty quickly, uh, as, a, as I tried to do on that stage. And how would you, how would you explain that to somebody who says, well, what if it's just feeding the inherent biases we already know into, into learning software? So it's, we're in its nascent phase, right? This is like the invention of the internet. The first weeks that we had the iPad or, or the iPhone it's a tool and we have to train the tool. We have to make sure the people programming these things, we have to make sure that the black box that has all this information is trained on information that reflects the patient populations being served. And so far they have not been. So far Facebook and Amazon can't recognize Serena Williams or Oprah Winfrey or uh, Michelle Obama out of a crowd. They'll miss them 25, 35% of time and they can pick me, a middle-aged white guy, out of a stadium uh, view tonight at the Bengals game. So that's there's work to be done there for sure. But let me argue the opposite. What about all of those places in rural America where you don't have access to an infectious disease specialist? Go one step further. What about sub-Saharan Africa or some of the smaller villages in India? We've got literally hundreds of thousands of people without access to any healthcare at, at all. When these machine learning models 
are scoring higher on the medical boards than physicians and scoring higher on empathy than physicians, can that be something that's an extender to places that don't have sub sub specialists like the cities where you and I live in practice? So I'm excited about the idea that you might have a machine that can go out and treat people at a at a very very high level when the op when the alternative is no care at all, right? And, and you know, pick inner city Cincinnati where people have poor access to healthcare. Maybe it's diagnosing uh, melanoma from an app on their phone. You know, they don't have access to a primary care doc. They get their care through the ER, you know, put the app up and yeah. And it's very, very good at recognizing that. What if you type in your symptoms or it hears your cough and it identifies that's probably bronchitis or laryngitis and helps process this through to a, a nurse practitioner equivalent who can cut a, a uh, an RX for, you know, ZPAC or whatever in your respective region or district. So for me, it's a great equalizer. It lets everyone have access to rudimentary care at the very least. And as these tools evolve and train, potentially higher level care than most of us are used to. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I love what you said. You know, that's why the binary dismissal or acceptance, I think, is a very dangerous approach that people have. Like, yes or no. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I am on board. I'm not. So when you say I'm not, it's like I'm not on board with at least some minimal competency, like you said tell people that otherwise don't get care at all like even the AI could say hey this you're clearly iron deficient your blood cells are getting smaller mcv is going down rdw the size is going up your set of 65 and just probe like hey you should probably get that colonoscopy you know in case you're just slow bleeding from a stage one colon cancer that's why the binary dismissal is very difficult for me and the second part of that is what i argued at least not argued but but proposed i was like if there is inherent bias we know there is we know there is in practice like at least like retrospectively right for years decades what if we were able to like, not what if, what an AI model could do is it can really recognize that this practice or this way or this means is actually causing a problem. Because if say the black American population or an Indian population was maybe getting something less than ideal or based on a study that was mostly Caucasians, it could say, hey, they're continuing to under, under response or underachieve and it can help you hopefully remove and untangle some of these kind of buried biases that we're just now recognizing to some degree, which is shameful, and saying, oh, we need to redo all the studies and prospective studies. It can actually figure that out, right? And especially with the with the pharma, uh, the genomics, like what you're born with in certain populations, culturally or racially, if, if you can start to recognize the patterns of, oh, this is why they do poorly, why are they getting this when they should be getting that, it can hopefully accelerate the uh some of the inherent biases that that at least the healthcare system has been um pretty forthcoming about about having to your point earlier you said about five years it'll be required a lot of the comments i get they're like yeah but only for the rich and only for you know how much is it going to cost us and most people can't afford like the thing i like to highlight is you said mandated by insurance and that's not because insurance is going to build the person a ton of money to get it insurance companies because i you know I'm not shy to say like, you know, they are obviously for, for profit. Insurance companies generally approve things that will statistically be less likely to cost them in the long run. That's the key because insurance doesn't want to fork out a ton of money for a ton of treatments, expensive chemos and targeted therapies if they can get, uh, avoid it. If they can cure you with surgery or some temporary therapy and then the surgery, that's far less of a cost to them than it is to treat a, you know, a metastatic patient forever. Like you said, it's hard to get the policies. 
that's why. So that's why you're saying mandated in five years. It's not going to cost me a thousand dollars to get this device a month. They're going to say, oh, you should, and you need to at the beginning. Why? Because our outcomes are so much better. And at the end of the day, sure, it costs us less for this patient's life and long-term uh, you know, survivorship or thrivership with this malignancy diagnosis. And that's what I'm excited about. I, you know, am very um, vocal about a lot of the concerns you see on social media as, you know, about about all these things. At first, I used to push it away because I, I didn't want to believe it. I was like, I spent 15 years, you know, nobody knows. And I'm like, oh, no, there is, all humans are fallible. Ate from the apple, whatever you want to talk about, you know, use your phrase. But this is some of the way, these are some of the ways that can actually be something that's positive or productive and you can at least conceive on why uh, that would be the case if you do believe they're for profit, pro for profit and stuff. So that's that's why I'm excited to see what comes of that quickly. And with that said, this is my next question, Doug, because you took it on. You said you decided to take put this journal out there and precision oncology. And I know how people receive it from my personal experience. I I know that came with a certain, you know, it, it took I guess courage. I don't know what the word is, but but a high value of importance for you to put this into fruition. What are some of the things we can either say or introduce to physicians that may be somewhat either averse or oppositional to integration of these things into practice sooner than later? You know, you and I have talked a lot about the future and, you know, obviously I'm leaning into it. I have a bias towards action and I see healthcare at a crossroads right now, maybe even a crisis. We have 18.1 million survivors. We don't have anywhere near enough caretakers, uh, not just doctors, but the nurses, um, people running survivorship clinics, genetic counselors, radiation therapists, you name it. We're short on everything right now, and I don't see that improving. My goal with this journal was to try and identify pragmatic, uh, pragmatic and practical applications and publish the validation studies to say, hey, listen, this test did improve on the accuracy and predictive um answers provided on a mammogram or an MRI or whatever, and reduce the workload on that radiologist by 45%. If I read that in a peer-reviewed journal and it showed me those numbers, that's what I want as a clinician before I make a change in my daily practice. Same thing, we talked about these um, generative AI processes that would replace the documentation burdens for doctors and nurses. If I can see a published trial saying that 96% of doctors stated that this improved their quality of life, improved their efficiency, improved the level of care, improved the quality of their notes, let them spend more time with patients. My healthcare systems can be very interested in purchasing a product that can deliver those things because you fix access. You take care of the staff shortages. You allow something that would reduce burnout a whole lot better than a pizza party for doctors, right? And so those are the things that I was hoping to publish in this journal, the very most pragmatic and practical, the things that are here today and then if there are good studies that come out that can predict future gains, I want them to be in our journal first so that people can get an early taste and start to get acquainted with them. Can you tell me more about that mammogram statistic? Yeah. Well, I mean, we have, uh, as I mentioned, probably five or six different companies that are vying for oxygen in that space. And uh, these companies are now publishing data. A lot of them are coming out of Harvard's uh, Department of Imaging and Connie Lehman looking at these tools which can improve the positive predictive value maintain the negative predictive value and save time. That's perfect. That's what we want in a screening test. And if we have tests like that, that can improve our sensitivity of detection of cancer and uh, keep pace with specificity so that we're not getting a lot of false positives, that's the holy grail for me. That's what I want to find as a cancer screener. 
And I would love to have more patients with surgical cures for lung cancer. Right now, it's only 6% or less of patients who are eligible even get the damn test. We've got to do better than that. And if we use tools like BPAs in the electronic medical record or Tamagotchi scores or whatever the AI equivalent will be to identify those patients at grave risk, then we're going to find more cancers per picture taken. And right now we're doing it based upon USPSTF stuff in my system. And we're finding a cancer every 31 unique people scanned. Imagine if we could target that even better and say, wow, in this particular patient, even though she is 48 years old, she's at very, very high risk for lung cancer. Let's screen her based upon real information and not just the, the year she was born, the number of times around the sun. So you're doing that now? You're like able to, to basically scan these unique populations and, and, and help kind of leverage a reason for something appropriately high risk rather well, than- I'm, only... I'm pushing towards it. What, what insurance companies will pay for, what Medicare pays for right now is 50 to 80 years old. You know, at the pack your smoking has to be recorded. You have to right. quit within 15 years. And I think ACS just amended to remove some of those things. And, and ACS, their relaxed criteria would increase by another 5 million the number of people who can be screened. Um, USPSTF tends to lag a little bit behind that. But uh, the reality is that we can do better. It yeah. is, uh, there are better tools being developed right now that will give you a better predicted risk, kind of like Tyrocrucic scores for mammograms and those sorts of things. We're seeing those things starting to get into the AI world and these larger data sets to say, based upon family history, genome, location, age, race, all of the predictors that would go into this, can we screen better and smarter? I think we can. My fear as someone that I was kind of unaware. I didn't know I would have so much passion about inequity and 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 bias. Um, but you don't know, you know, what you don't know until you see it. And then I've learned so much and been humbled the last couple of years, uh, in part due to social media, is that you may be at the mercy of your healthcare system or physician opting to get the assistance on that mammogram read or on that colonoscopy or EGD. And now all of a sudden, it's like based on where you live, somebody's whatever reason to not do it. And I'm going to be very unpopular to some for saying this, and I know it's very like you're not supposed to say this, but but I hope there's some consideration on patients being able to have the autonomy on their own health to like upload or populate to at least a second set of eyeballs, right? So it's hard to get a second opinion on your image nowadays uh, or ever. Like you can't just have someone else look. I don't even know if that's possible, but but if you are able to upload in the way that we have technology. And then you're able to upload each one annually. It's just like having a second opinion or assistance, not to say that, that oh, the healthcare system was wrong, but it's at least to admit that there's fallibility in humans, which unless you say there isn't, then, you know, what is the argument to say, hey, not, why not have an assistive modality that can take into account the weight changes and everything and, and have an appreciation for those changes on the mammogram? If you gain 30 pounds between two years, then somebody may with their eyeballs, you know, and ability to pull up the previous. So I don't know how you feel about that. You don't have to say it. I'll just, I'll, I'll bear the, the cross on that one. Um, but, to but take it one step further. I mean, is it such a stretch to imagine that we can screen for diseases with plasma, right? So we know coronary disease is the end stage of someone who's had hyperlipidemia for decades, hyper, hypertension, diabetes. I can now go on levels and order a continuous glucose monitor that I stick on my arm as a non-doctor that will go to an app and tell me what happens every time I have a glass of wine or a bowl of pasta, right? We're at the age now where our Fitbits and our Apple Watches can tell us our EKGs. Um, there are tons of wearables out there, including new implantable ports that will measure the temperature 24 hours a day. 
from inside the body. Five years from now, I think these wearables are going to be super common and people are going to be able to get them um, on the interweb. They're going to be able to order it from Amazon or from one of these companies. So patients are going to have more information they've ever had before too. And that's where the systems biology approach, the Dr. Hood stuff that we talked about is exciting to me because if you find a patient whose circulating tumor cells goes up or chromosome arms or DNA methylation or LDH, pick your proxy. And that says, pay attention to me, even though I'm 29 years old, boy, that's cool. And that patient may not need imaging. They probably need serial blood tests and, and you do it anyway. Right now, when you check for um, BCR ABLE, right? And you're, you're doing your international scores for uh, chronic myeloid leukemias or when you do immunophenotyping of the CD38 positive and the ZAP30s for for, uh, for um, COL, we're getting refined in that fashion. Pretty soon, screening should enter that realm as well. And it shouldn't be pictures anymore because by the time you and I can see it, it's already 10 with nine zeros cancer cells behind it. Yeah, uh, I would much rather find it in its infancy and start to screen that patient 12 years before. Yeah. You know, whether it be a colon polyp, for sure, we know that one pretty well. But there's got to be the equivalent of the lung and breast and other as well. There had to be a moment where the light went on and that cell became a, a malignant clone and started to shed, as you said, those pieces of hair and chromosome fragments. Yeah. And and one thing, you know, when it goes back to AI and, and learning software is, and I can say this because I'm a medical oncologist, but I'm also like, you know, an empath on the other side of things. There's been even frustration quite a bit from some med onks that's like, well, now there's these ways to be able to check about a recurrence, you know, sooner than we would have done the imaging at three months and we can't find it. So now the oncologist is left to tell the patient or their husband or their wife, like, you know, well, yeah, we found it, but we don't know what to do. Right. So like, there's a lot of, I get both sides. Cause one, it's like, you know, medical oncologists are uh, like any field, like there's kind of growing burnout as all the data shows. And then these new things come out and, and they're kind of, they catch the responsibility without really guidelines on what to do with it. I think that's where on the interweb, if people are getting these devices and say, look, my metabolic thing is going up, you know, at three, 3 AM, this is a 90% uh, kind of um, association with, with some either, you know, metabolic issue, malignant, God forbid. And the data shows that a doctor may say, well, I don't know what to do with that. And then like all of a sudden now the patient is kind of left with something for, you know, on third base, right? And then and then have to t- go back to the bench. Instead, you need to be able to go to the home to, 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 to get the better care. That was a bad analogy. If we as physicians just push away technology and data, which is what we're built on, like, then we won't be equipped for when the technology and data gets better and somebody has every right to be concerned about a recurrence, about a cancer in their, in their loved one, as we would be if it was our family members, we have a responsibility right? To like, have to like, like stay afloat. And with the growing burnout-ness that's happening in the medical system, again, to push away AI assistance or pattern recognition or, or basically catch this huge volume of technology and data due to discomfort or unfamiliarity, I think is, it could be a potentially humongous, you know, bottleneck and, and really put a strain on physicians and the healthcare system again to a, to a whole nother fault. Yeah, I, I just think it's hubris. I, you know, I've, I've been around for 20 years now. When I started, carboplatin was done on a slide rule, a literal plastic slide rule, Sanjay. Like, to figure out the area under the curve, my partners gave me a slide rule when I came out into practice. Everybody was nervous about moving to electronic medical record. Everyone was nervous about doing chemotherapy protocols on the computer. 
everybody was nervous about virtual health. You know, and this goes back, go back to Henry Ford. Like everybody's all worried about losing jobs and the buggy drivers lost their jobs. You know what they did after that? They trained to be mechanics, right? That this is what happens. You get new tools. There are early adopters like you and I that lean into them and we might be ahead of the curve. The other group will catch up and the things that have been proven validated and worthy will be accepted by that group. And then the late group will have to do it to keep pace because they're just behind the game and they're not providing that level of care. So all I want to do is stimulate more discussions like you and I are having so people understand, number one, AI is not one thing. Thousands of tools. Evaluate how AI can help individual strategies. You don't need an AI strategy, right? These are potential answers to problems that you have in your clinic. They might be smart answers and and you need smart people to parse through that for you because it is coming rapidly, right? More people started using chat GPT-3 than, um, than Facebook or Instagram put together in the first three months. And now it's largely ubiquitous and replacing entire disciplines in law and marketing and copywriting. And um, I just think physicians are late to the game always because we're so circumspect. We have so little time to learn new things and we don't trust anything that we can't hold in our hands and see validated studies. So let's do the studies. Let's prove the proof of principle. Let's publish it in a peer-reviewed journal. And then let's let them read and decide if that 45% of hours saved is worthwhile. Yeah, I love it. And that's why, you know, X-Cures is, is something I got on board with, gosh, probably a year or two ago now, is because they try to be that bridge until it's accepted or not accepted. It's a democratization to at least have access. It's AI-empowered. They've been, they've been doing it for years to say, hey, it shouldn't matter where you live, who your health center is or your physician. We're not replacing anything. But at least to be able to, that's my big concern is like the adopters, you talked about a curve, where here, which is unpopular, I wish it wasn't unpopular, there are people that will lag, you know, some I'm sure respectful, very respectable reasons, but the patient themselves, like to be at the mercy of where their treating physician is on that bell-shaped curve, you know, you could see how that could be a uh, concern, but there's also AI platforms uh, and AI modalities that hopefully help democratize that as well. So lots, lots to unfold and uncover and see, but I think you actually did an amazing job. I feel very good about that integration that I was hoping to capture in this episode. I'm saying like, again, my fear that people are going to push away something that's going to help a lot of people. And I think you give us a very granular way to appreciate how those things can happen or help semi-immediately. And it's not being this takeover out of job thing, uh, but really could lead to, uh, you know, a fruitful experience for, for even physicians and patients when it comes to time and, and empowerment and best care. So, yeah, we can be optimistic and careful, right? That's yeah, not binary either. You're your sound bites. They're just amazing. I mean, it's, it's, you summarize it well in, in a couple of words. Well, thank you, Doug. I really appreciate it. Um, is there anything else you want to leave with anybody? I could give you a difficult question, you know, about like, if you could see something change immediately tomorrow in oncology, what would it be? Are you up for, for taking that one off? Or? I'm up for whatever. Sure. Yeah. Tell me if, if there was, if there was one or two aspects of your everyday life right now that you could change come Monday when it relates to medical oncology that you would like to either see uh, or be a part of, what would they be? Uh, I'd say two. One, uh, we've talked about the documentation. We're ready to pull the trigger on that here. I think that that's, that product was released about two weeks ago. It's validated. It's being used in 200 centers right now. I'm very, very excited about that for all of our doctors. 
I think that that's going to be something that's going to take over like wildfire. And a year from now, a practice can't even stay afloat without having access to that. Two is talking about bias. I really do hope that we get closer to patients of color, patients of disadvantaged and disenfranchised communities for clinical trials. And I think screening for trials that way and using these AI tools to try and match patients with studies holds some hope. And again, there are a number of corporations, another number of startups and companies that are doing this. I'm pretty excited about that. It takes about 30 to 45 minutes to screen a patient for trial in a community clinic. Uh, I would love to have a tool do that for us and save us that 45 minutes so that CRC or CRN can do something that's more high yield for them to reduce their burnout and let them feel more engaged in the game. So now those two, I think, are ready to roll right now, today. Yeah, no, those are huge. Hopefully undo some of those biases that you know we've talked about multiple times and you keep hearing about. That is the way we do it. To get better outcomes and to undo the bias is to do it the right way. And that's what trials do. They say, let's look at the things we didn't look at or the things we were a little haphazard about uh, and, and write the script correctly for management in the future. So well, I appreciate you so much. And I look forward to um, learning more and from your journal. I believe it comes out the first episode, the first journal issue full is in January, correct? Yep. Awesome. And the preview issue is already out, AI and Precision Oncology. Well, thank you, Doug. Um, and we look forward to hopefully hearing more from you in the future. Thanks for having me, Sanjay. Enjoyed our conversation. Take care. You too.